And we hope you'll stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable here on WPK in Bridgeport. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the board of directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here again with us in the studio. Hey, Ruth. Good morning, Scott. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Richard Hill is also with us, and he's remote today, phoning in from his travels in Africa, this time from Dakar, Senegal. He's host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand He's also on a rotating host of the uh, other regular show heard here on WPKN, Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Richard, how are things in Dakar? Very, very festive. I'm sorry to say I was out partying last night, so till all hours, so I'm a, my little horse today. We understand. We understand fully. I'm uh, Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint and uh, producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. We have a guest a little later this morning. That's India Walton, an activist and uh, a candidate uh, in New York's second largest city. That's Buffalo, New York, uh, back a couple of years ago. She made a lot of headlines. Uh, She's now with a group called Roots Action. We'll hear more from her in about 15 minutes. But before we... uh, get started with uh, India Walton, um, we were going to go around the table here, and I first would turn to you, Richard, to talk briefly, if you would, about uh, the U.S. attack on Yemen and the Houthi rebels there after they had been uh, targeting ships in the Red Sea as a major transit point uh, for world cargo. Indeed, as most people probably know by now, on Thursday, um, January 11th, just this past week, the United States launched airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. And these were purportedly, as you said, in an effort to deter Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. These ships are alleged by the Houthis to be transporting materiel and armaments to Israel in its assault on Gaza resupplying Israel for those attacks. And these attacks were repeated for a second time yesterday. Well, after considerable cheerleading from the usual cavalcade of retired generals on cable news, it was refreshing to hear the former deputy national security advisor with the Obama administration, Ben Rhodes, appear on Alex Wagner tonight. Uh, That was on Thursday. And he said that these what were described as very surgical attacks on the Houthi targets in Yemen 
were actually a major escalation that could endanger and and potentially inflame the region into a full-scale regional war, which could draw in Iran. And this is partially because the Houthis are in a very important, but I guess you could say informal alliance described as the axis of resistance with Hezbollah and Hamas. And these groups are all described by the Western media and national security establishment as being proxies of Iran, which immediately directs the searchlight of American malevolence toward Iran, which I think is precisely what Israel has been sort of pushing for over the past 15 years, targeting Iran as being the source, the head of the snake, so to speak, for all evil that occurs in the Middle East. And I think that uh, Ben Rhodes pointed out that what is needed here is not these escalatory attacks, but diplomacy to end the war in Gaza, because as long as that war continues, and the Houthis have this justification for attacking the shipping in the Red Sea, there's a potential for a regional conflict that could, in fact, draw in Iran, which would be, of course, disastrous for the region and also for the United States, which would, in its unmitigated uh, and undiluted support for Israel, potentially draw the United States into that conflict directly with Iran. So I think what has been described as surgical attacks on Houthi targets in Yemen is, as Ben Rose says, a major escalation. Thank you, Richard. I'll just say a, a brief word about uh, the South Africa case against Israel and what's going on in Gaza. Uh, but first mention that uh, today, January 13th, hundreds of thousands of people are expected to be demonstrating in Washington, uh, London, other major cities all around the world. Um on a, a national march for Palestine, um, there are 66 cities in 36 countries across six continents uh, that will be participating in the Global Day of Action for Palestine after more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since the Hamas attack on October 7th that killed 1,200 Israelis and took 240 hostages. Uh, as all of our listeners are well aware, South Africa has brought a case uh, of genocide against Israel in the uh, International Court of Justice. Um, the representatives there in The Hague and Netherlands presented their case before the International Tribunal on Thursday, alleging that Israel had committed grave violence and genocidal acts on Palestinian civilians in Gaza and called on the judges there to order an immediate ceasefire. The South African attorneys maintain that Israel has shown chilling and incontrovertible incontrovertible intent to commit uh, genocide in Gaza with full knowledge of how many civilians it has killed. Uh, they went on to submit statements made by Israel's political and military leaders, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, in support of its case. It showed photos of Palestinian mass graves, Israeli flags adorning wreckage in Gaza, and what it claimed were videos of Netanyahu expressing support for genocide as well as troops taking his cue, it, it alleged chanting, no uninvolved citizens. Genocides are never declared in advance, but this court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that justifies a plausible claim of genocidal acts 
And that's a, a quote from Adila Hassim of, the, of South Africa. Hassim said Israel had dropped 6,000 bombs a week in the first three weeks after October 7th and the uh, Hamas attack on Israel, had used 2,000-pound bombs, some of the biggest and most destructive bombs available, 200 times in southern Gaza, uh, in zones that Israel had designated as, quote-unquote, safe zones for Palestinian civilians, in addition to at least 23,570 people, mostly women and children, being killed during Israel's offensive in Gaza, according to its health ministry, Hassim said the bodily and mental harm inflicted on Palestinians and the imposition of conditions intended to bring about destruction were also evidence of genocide. She alleged the displacement of Palestinians, widespread dehydration and starvation, and an assault on the health care system. Israel's representatives had their chance to respond to this uh, yesterday, Friday, and they asked the court to dismiss the case which, his lawyer, which uh, Israel's lawyers said was based on grossly distorted accusations. Israel has staunchly rejected the accusation of genocide, insisting that it is acting within its right to self-defense after the Palestinian militant group Hamas and their attack of October 7th. They also accused South Africa of brazen gall, quote-unquote, in bringing the case, which it has uh, dismissed as false and baseless. And a defense of Hamas is what they claim South Africa is doing. The International Court of Justice generally rules on disputes between United Nations member states, but it's a civil, not a criminal court. And by definition, it has no jurisdiction to try individuals accused of war crimes or crimes against humanity. Its decisions are binding, and there is no avenue for appeals. But, however, the court has no means to enforce its rulings. So, there's a lot more to come from the case in The Hague uh, that South Africa has brought. Um, we just have a few minutes left. I know you had uh, something you wanted to relate to our audience this morning, Ruth. I do, Scott, and I, I hope I can squeeze it in because it's, it's been eating away at me, as my mother used to say. <clears throat> my little rant is called How Old is Too Old. I'm hearing via all my media that Joe Biden is too old to be elected president, but Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump was born June 14, 1946. Joe Biden, November 20, 1942. That means both of the candidates for president currently leading the pack are older than I am, although I, too, am a septuagenarian. By the way, 39 senators are 70 or more years old, including four over 80. Although I rarely feel old, except when I forget someone's name or can't find my keys, I'm comfortable in this aged circle. Trump is 77 and a half years old. Biden is 82 plus years old. Obviously, to some voters, that difference is decisive. It means that when Biden started kindergarten, Trump still had four plus years of feckless playtime left. But when I go into the ballot box, I'm not going to be thinking about years, months, or days. I'm going to be thinking about the future and, like any responsible voter, imagining the candidates confronting the urgent questions that confront us, issues of the nation and of the world and all the people in it. The two leading presidential candidates have lived through crises relevant to these issues. But my question is this, which of the candidates and or others that might still emerge understands the gravity and importance of the changes that have taken place in this country and how hard won every step forward has been. 
which was exploiting the confusion and which was trying to do something about it. I don't know if Biden fit any particular childhood stereotype when he was in school. Teacher's pet, cute boy, club leader, smart kid, poor kid, police boy, uh, jock, etc. But I know what type Trump evokes, schoolyard bully. Always threatening to beat you up, striding around the playground with his boys, who modeled their strut on his and wielded his implied power, and some of whom, like him, um, uh, subsequently got in trouble with the law, taking your lunch money, leering at the girls, and what seems to be where he stuck and perhaps where his votes come from. Growing up, Biden, Trump, and I were witnesses to and to, and to some extent participants in the civil rights movement. But which of us formed commitments to civil rights and which helped his father keep his New York City properties segregated? All three of us lived through the war in Vietnam and the re- repercussions here at home on the military draft, draftable students and our sense of national responsibility. But which of us tried to find a constructive role to play in the response and which was nursing his bone spurs? We all saw the Earth Day demonstrations and read the newspapers about global warming and species extinction, just as we all had seen or learned about the realities and consequences of the atomic bomb. But which of us tried to learn to make peace? We all saw oppressed people abroad struggling for civil and economic opportunities, but which of us refused to collaborate with the dictators oppressing them? And we see the struggles of the poor as the cost of living steadily rises and access to profitable work narrows. But who is making efforts to expand education and access to opportunities for Native and immigrant Americans to participate? We all know the importance of educational opportunity, but which of us has worked to open those doors? We all were exposed to the struggles of the elders and the impoverished young in society, but which of us tried to help them put food on their tables and medicine by the bedside? And today we see the struggles of communities in our nation and abroad, and which of us tries to reach out a hand to the people struggling rather than to their oppressors? Is Joe Biden too old for what? For Trump, the challenges all leadership seems the challenges of leadership seem merely opportunities to transfer transform Congress into the playground bullies boys um, to mock, to dominate, or to boast about remembering a five-word sequence in the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Voice changing from a snarl to his drifting storytelling mode, it was 30 to 35 questions, said the president. The first questions were very easy. The last questions are much more difficult, like a memory question. It's like you'll go person, woman, man, camera, TV. So they say, could you repeat that? So I said, yeah, it's person, woman, man, camera. If you get in order, you get extra points. They said, nobody gets it in order. It's actually not that easy. For me, it was easy. And he offers to take it again if Biden will take it too. This is the great mind that will uh, that will be bent on the crisis of the crises of the coming years, climate emergency, poverty, rising and falling tyrannies, aging, resurging racism, and what will aging, what will four years in age have to do with the ability of political leaders to lead or even understand the nations they lead, the world they inhabit? We should ask Congress, perhaps, where 39 senators are 70 or more years old, including four over 80. Thank you, Ruth. And uh, right now, we're very happy to welcome to our program India Walton. In a stunning political upset in Buffalo, New York in 2021, the state's second largest city, progressive community activist India Walton defeated four-term Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown in the Democratic primary, but lost to his write-in campaign in the general election. 
India is a nurse who ran her 2021 campaign with the support of Democratic Socialists of America and the Working Families Party. She now serves as Roots Action's senior strategic organizer, where she leads nationwide issue campaigns. Roots Action is dedicated to galvanizing people who are committed to economic fairness, equal rights, environmental protection, and defunding endless wars. Thank you for making time to join us on our program this morning, India. Good morning, and thank you for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. And uh, I know you've got to leave in just a few minutes, so I'm just going to ask you a a first question based on a recent article you wrote uh, in Truth Out titled, Black Women Support the Democratic Party, But Does the Party Support Them?, You write about your concern that support for Joe Biden's candidacy in this November's critical 2024 presidential election is eroding due to his administration's failure to address major issues of importance to communities of of color and black women in particular, uh, key constituents for the Democratic Party uh, that they need to win in elections. Also of growing concern that we've been talking about this morning is Biden's refusal to support a ceasefire in Gaza and he's uh, lost a lot of support, particularly among young people and Arab Americans and people from all walks of life, actually, who are outraged at the death toll in Gaza. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about your concerns that you said so well in this piece I'd recommend to our listeners. Sure. And, you know, I would like to preface it by saying these are opinions that I'm hearing you know, from peers on the ground, right, at our kitchen tables and at the grocery store and in school auditoriums, people are very frustrated. Um, You know, black women and young people saved the 2020 election with the promise of being able to move the Biden administration further left, you know, with the promise of student debt cancellation, um, you know, codifying role. And we've not seen these things happen. Um, As a matter of fact, we've seen the reverse. We've seen Joe Biden declare an end to the pandemic when we know that people are still suffering, you know, physically, mentally, financially. Um, We have not seen the promises of dragging uh, the current administration further left come to fruition. I think that a lot of folks are frustrated. Um, We are tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Um, And we want to finally have a choice to vote for good. And that means the good of the working class people and not corporations and not funding perpetual war, but making sure that we have the social safety nets that are in place that are needed in this country for our children and our future to thrive. Well, thank you for that, India. Um, Our co-host Richard Hill, I believe, has a comment or a question for you as well. Sure. Thank you, India. It's a pleasure to hear you uh, on our show. I wanted to uh, actually raise a question. This past week, I spoke with Michael Zweig. He's a professor emeritus from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And he's also a union organizer and an activist on many fronts. And he wrote a book several years ago called The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret. And the thesis of that book is that, (laughs) that... unbeknownst apparently to the political class in this country, the uh, ruling elite. You know, most people in this country are in fact members of the working class. They mm-hmm. work for a living. They earn, uh, you know, uh, some some level of income that sustains them, but not in, with any particular luxury. Well, so I wanted to raise the question, given that you ran that campaign in Buffalo and uh, actually turned out many people who wanted to support a progressive agenda I want to ask you, to what 
degree do you believe that there might be, in fact, a progressive majority in this country, not just a working class majority, but people that actually believe in progressive solutions to the many problems that we confront in this country? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, right? And when we have conversations on doors with people about popular ideas, right, about joining a union, or not even a union per se, but having a living wage and workers' rights, um, about affordable health care and affordable housing and access to a quality education without having to take on, you know, enormous student debt. Those areas resonate with the majority of people, right? But when you begin to call it leftist or progressive or socialist, it sort of freaks people out. So I think that what we have is a battle of identity and narrative, where there are a lot of working class people who don't know that they are working class. We have people who are the working poor who don't identify as poor people because they believe that someday, if they work hard enough, they will be a part of the ruling class. And for the majority of us, that's just not true, right? My campaign in 2021 was full of an intergenerational, you know, multiracial, working class. It was a movement of people from all different backgrounds, demographics, and things like that. And we were defeated by the ruling class, the political class, right? It was not a race issue necessarily, right? I was a black woman candidate who was my, my opponent was a, a black man, the first black person to be to be mayor of Buffalo. But what happened was they began to call me a socialist. They began to make people afraid that I would, you know, reject their rights to own property and, you know, let all of the criminals out of like these fear tactics that keep people who would benefit from these popular ideas not going out to the polls and electing people who would implement progressive policies and legislation because of the fear of the other. So, you know, a lot of folks told me that they are going with the devil they know. They will rather be oppressed by the system that they are used to navigating rather than try something new because there is a precarity and an, an, an uncertainty about whether it will work, who will pay, and who will suffer. But again, those are just stories that we tell ourselves and stories that we're being told so that we keep people in a position of servitude and subservience rather than seeing this rise of the proletariat. So what I'm looking forward to is progressives continuing to organize and to create the, the big tent uh, that we need state by state in order to be able to make sure that this movement continues to grow and that we get some real champions for working class people in office. Thank you, India. And uh, our co-host Ruth Ann Baumgartner has uh, a comment or question as well. Hi, India. I'm, I'm really interested in what you have to say about the, the, the language that we use and how that affects people's behavior. Uh, and often it affects a person's choice, person's wrong choice in terms of where he or she should be allied. I have some wonderful politicians who come to my door once in a while and we sit on the porch and talk about this and that. And I always feel as if I'm keeping them too long because I do tend to go long. But they always thank me, and they seem to actually mean it. That doesn't necessarily mean my side wins. How can we change the vocabulary of the people you see on the porch 
rather than the people mm-hmm. who are who are going necessarily to the ballot box or sitting in front of their televisions. I teach English. Uh, it's it's not that useful a language sometimes. Um, how can we how can we reexamine our terminology maybe, or are there different stories we ought to be telling in order to uh, make uh, make the choices a little closer to what the reality is? Yeah, I I think that one of the things that I've become good at, and it's not even something that I've become good at, right? Um, I can tell a story, right? Um, Because I grew up poor, because I'm working class, because I face all these challenges in my life, I can relate when I go and sit on the porch with someone and, and speak to them. I can relate to what they're going through. And I think it's not a matter of changing the language of the person who answers the door, but changing the language of the person who knocks on the door, mm. particularly in the progressive movement. We use lots of lingo, language, hot words that we understand because we spend days in conferences, right, with butcher paper on the walls, developing a common language that the average working class person does not understand, right? When I go to a door and I say, hey, aren't you tired of these systems of oppression? They don't know what I'm talking about, right? Right. right. The language that should be used is, don't you want your child to have a quality education? Don't you want your children to have access to the American dream? Even millennials and, and, and folks in the generation after me, that language resonates, right? Your parents were able to purchase a home, go to college, working part-time, you know, with, and they had living wage jobs. Our wages have not kept up with the rate of inflation. We're being exploited left and right. People don't like that feeling, right? right. But we have to use language that they understand. People are not stupid, Right. But we don't need to make ourselves sound smart by using jargon when we speak. Mm. Make it plain. Don't you want to be able to go afford your groceries? I guess that's why the parables were invented. Right. Instead of going out with a rolling out the religious lingo that the priests are, are offering, you just tell them a little story that sounds a whole lot like themselves. Exactly. And we right. all have one. Right. And I strive to find out what are the things that we have that bring us together? What do we have in common rather than that which divides us? Thank you. Well, Andy, I know you're on a tight schedule and thank you for being here with us, but I just wanted to uh, mention one thing before we say goodbye, and that is Roots Action will be hosting an online panel discussion this Tuesday, January 16th, titled, What Should Progressives Do About Joe Biden? Featuring yourself and a host of other folks. uh, I wonder if you would just mention a little bit about the goal of this dialogue and how our listeners can sign up and join the conversation. Absolutely. So um, head on over to progressivehub.net where you can sign up for that webinar that's going to happen. It will be myself, Norman Solomon, Alan Minsky, um, Jeff Cohen, Karen Bernal, Max Elbaum, um, and Medina Wilson-Anton. Um, and, you know, I think this conversation really is centered about, like, not only the lack of viability and the terrible polling that Joe Biden is putting up, but also what do we do as progressives to build our bench and build a progressive pipeline so that we're not reacting and scrambling to find an alternative when it comes election season. Um, So it's going to be a very good conversation. I'm very much looking forward to it, and I hope that folks will tune in. Okay, and that's Progressive Hub. Just look that up or Roots Action, I think, either one, right? Okay. ProgressiveHub.net or RootAction.org. Got it. 
India, it's been a pleasure, and uh, time was too short. So we'd love to have you back, and we'll, we'll give you Absolutely. a call and try to set that up. Thank you. All right. Thanks okay. a lot. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. That's uh, India Walton, uh, Roots Action uh, Coordinator, and uh, someone who has uh, really caught the attention of the of the whole nation in her uh, bid to unseat an incumbent mayor in Buffalo, New York, back in 2021 on a, a progressive a democratic socialist agenda. Got a lot to say. Definitely would mm-hmm. love to have her back on this show and others. But we have some time here before we uh, say goodbye to our audience uh, in this January edition of Resistance Roundtable. I'll just remind folks that uh, we're here with uh, Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner and myself, Scott Harris, uh, on the second Saturday of each month. And uh, Ruth Ann, I know you had something on your mind that's been burning uh, the pages on your on your uh, printer at home for for months now. You, you want to let loose with that right now? Well, I have a lot on my mind, but I would really like to give you the last paragraph of my um, of my rant because it's great. So if that's all right, I know our time schedule was a little less than it traditionally is this today. My conclusion uh, is age isn't as important a measure as character. For example, while Trump received state-of-the-art testing and care at Walter Reed Hospital, ringing the blocks on which the hospital sat were cars, 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 two and sometimes three deep with all horns honking to let the Donald know people were outside adoring him. Walter Reed is an important military and veterans hospital. What about quiet for the sake of the patients? But those cars were out there honking their horns nonstop for an hour or more, Trump must have loved it, and maybe there's another sign of his youthfulness, like a child at a birthday party. Given a choice, I'll vote for the adult in the room. And I guess this is uh, guiding the way, the way that I yell at my television and yell at my radio and yell at my other media that, that uh, have things to say to me all the time. I feel as if I don't like the media telling me how the narrat- what the narrative means anymore. I just want the information, and I'd like to interpret it for myself. Uh, because the way that it's interpreted by the media tends to be the way it has been interpreted or the way that the parties or the ma- political managers are are using language uh, to, to refer to India's uh, to talk as well. Uh, the way that language is being used and whether it's communicating with us in a useful way anymore or whether we're, we're being presented with a set of stereotypes. So I guess that's what I wanted to say, Scott. Okay. Well, I do have something that I, I prepared here for today uh-huh. that I'll say briefly, and I can get yours and uh, Richard's reaction to it. As I think uh, most of our audience is aware from uh, the reporting in our news media, last Saturday, the nation marked the third year since Donald Trump's violent and extremist uh, January 6, 2021 failed coup attempt that highlighted the rise of right-wing extremist violence in America that we've witnessed over the past few, maybe five to ten years. We've seen the rise of political violence uh, since Donald Trump took over the Republican Party and normalized threats of physical violence targeting his perceived enemies and political opponents. Just in the news recently, of course, is that the judge overseeing the election interference case against Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., had her home visited by police after a fake emergency call and attempts were made to do the same to the prosecutor in the election interference case. That's Jack Smith. And uh, that, what's that called? Swatting now is the new, the, new, uh, the new term. 
The main Secretary of State was swatted, too, after she ruled that the former president could not appear on the ballot there because of the 14th Amendment. The Colorado Supreme Court judges who ruled similarly have faced threats and death threats and all that from Trump supporters, leading to increased security. There was also a round of bomb threats phoned into state capitals sent to secretaries of state and legislative offices that were believed to be a hoax but led to evacuations around the country this month. Those hoaxes came after letters containing fentanyl were sent to election offices in a handful of states back in November. Over recent years, there has been mass shootings that have killed dozens of people incited by Trump. Fox News and other right-wing media propaganda outlets, such as the white supremacist who killed 10 black shoppers at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. We were just talking about Buffalo, of course, with India Walton. A white gunman killed 23 people in a racist attack on Hispanic shoppers at a Walmart at a Texas border city. An anti-Semitic terrorist killed 11 people and wounded six in an attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A mass murderer influenced by the Republican Party and Tucker Carlson's weaponized disinformation about the so-called Great Replacement Theory that promotes a conspiracy that Jews had organized caravans of Hispanic immigrants to enter the U.S. A Florida man sent pipe bombs to prominent Democrats and news outlets. A deranged Trump supporter in San Francisco attempted to kill Nancy Pelosi's husband, an attack that Trump makes jokes about during his current campaign rallies. Last June, a man with a car full of guns and materials to make bombs was arrested in former President Barack Obama uh, in his neighborhood, Washington, uh, D.C. And Donald Trump had posted what he claimed was Barack and Michelle Obama's address on his social media account which was believed to be the inspiration that this guy came hunting for the Obamas with his guns and bombs. Over recent elections, there's been an exponential increase in threats targeting election officials, causing many election staff and volunteers to resign, creating a dangerous shortfall in the people needed to run and fairly monitor our election systems. It's obvious that Donald Trump and many Republicans understand that their dangerous rhetoric and threats trigger real-world violence. But by and large, these same GOP politicians either refuse to condemn the violence they trigger or they stay silent. Earlier this year, Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney, a former Republican presidential candidate, related what he heard from fellow Republican senators who expressed a desire to vote to convict Trump in the second Senate impeachment trial, and this was, of course, after the January 6th failed insurrection. In the end, many of his colleagues, Mitt Romney related, did not vote to convict Donald Trump in that uh, trial because uh, they were convinced that their vote to convict Trump would trigger death threats and possible violence against themselves, their wives, and their children. There's no doubt that the threat of political violence from Trump, his political allies and supporters will continue into this election year because they know the threats and intimidation work as as just, you know, expressed in that quote from uh, Mitt Romney. When their policies and political agenda are losers at the ballot box, 
these folks take to issuing death threats. It's the same mindset that has caused the Republican Party to propose and pass hundreds of voter suppression laws and employ partisan and racially biased gerrymandered district maps all over the U.S. When you can't win elections, you lie, you cheat, you steal, and you threaten your opponents with death. And I have long said that unless a Big Ten inclusive popular front of democracy defenders organizes to oppose the fascist threat posed by Trump and many in the Republican Party, that unless Democratic Party politicians call out the names of their colleagues who incite their supporters to engage in violence, and unless the Justice Department sounds the alarm and takes action against those criminal politicians, militia groups, and individuals who foment political violence, our U.S. democracy and civil society in our nation will remain in jeopardy. Accountability is what's needed, and it's urgently needed now before more people are hurt or killed by extremists hell-bent on imposing their deranged vision of a white supremacist fascist state. And I really think that's this kind of crisis that we're in as we see the rise of political violence in our country in this uh, really important 2024 election year. So with that said, (laughs) I'll I'll ask you both to comment or or go on to another topic. Well, I'm going to take a stiff shot of... uh bourbon, maybe cough medicine, actually. That was bracing, Scott, I must say. Uh, I wonder if you think, either of you think that the criminal trials and and civil trials that Trump is is actually slow walking through at this point will have any any effect on potentially mitigating the threats that you, you have just referred to, Scott, or will they in fact exacerbate them? Oh, I, I think that the the worst instigator of the of these threats. I'm thinking back to uh, just a decade or two ago when it was so cool in high school. If if you thought that you had a jerk in your class, everybody would send him pizzas, and so he would suddenly find himself with a hundred pizzas being delivered to his home, and with the bills for those pizzas as well. Um, I forget what that was called. It was not called pizzaing, but. <laughs> But obviously, that's directly related to the doxing and the swatting and all these other anonymous, secret, by computer, um, access to access to contact information by computer and access to action by computer that that makes it easy to be like the the secret man, the the, the lurking threat that no one can ever catch. I think there are cultural heroes who fit that description about 100 years ago. Uh, but but the, the anonymity of the attack seems to, to seems to help. I heard a, a lot of discussion about the, the Ohio elections that ju- just took place uh, and, and the idea that crossing the room had become dangerous and somebody might beat you up for crossing to the wrong side of the room, indicating you were going to vote in a way that that other person didn't want you to vote. But at least that's like owning what you're doing. It's human beings acting against human beings. Whereas when it's floating around in the ether, you feel as if you're trying to combat some kind of uh, enemy that is so impersonal that it must be omnipotent. Uh, and and people are cowering in their homes as a consequence. That's my mm. my feeling. I think the computer is a really big enemy here. 
I would just uh, say in, in response to what you said, uh, Richard, I think things will get worse as these trials get into gear and, you know, the delaying tactics, the, the delaying tactics of Trump and his lawyers kind of uh, reach their climax. There's, these trials will start. And I, I think it will only uh, incite more threats of violence or real violence, which is frightening. And I would just say, I think with with all the rise of these violent acts and the threats of violence, we really can't blame Trump himself. We really have to blame the Republican Party, which has stood silent and in support of Trump and all he stands for, including the threats to violence. And you have a lot of Republicans who know better, but they remain silent. And they are the problem. They are the ones who are cowards and refuse to stand up to a fascist imbecile, in my view. Your suggestion that what is required is is like, I guess, a united front to bring together many different elements of anti-fascist and pro-democracy elements to combat this real scary situation that, that this teetering democracy is currently going through. I wanted to make the suggestion that I, I think that Biden's address at uh, Valley Forge once again rang the bell of, you know, democracy is under threat. We need to make sure that we uh, support democratic forces and that we defend democracy in all quarters. But to me, it was a little hollow because the definition of democracy that he was proposing was this very abstract notion, you know, that, uh, you know, it's, it, we have to defend the right to vote and you know, if you don't get to vote and our election workers are under threat, that kind of thing, it's all based on the electoral system and, and that that's the main element of democracy. What I'm going to suggest is that we need to broaden our definition of democracy to include all those things that India was suggesting, it, it, you know, as part of what could be a progressive majority in this country, which actually may exist without actually being our most of our people in the country being even aware that they are progressive because they're concerned with issues of like the right of people to organize into unions, racial justice, economic equity, LGBTQ rights. All these things should, I think, be part of the definition of democracy as opposed to just the abstract notion of people being able to you know, go to the polls every two years and cast their ballot. And I, I think that that's sadly the way the conversation usually goes. And I think Biden's campaign is being run, at least initiated, on those grounds. You know, he's trying to re bring back what he believes worked in 2020 when he raised the clarion call, let's defend democracy against the threat by mm -hmm. Trump, the authoritarian threat. So that's my thought is broaden the definition of democracy to, to include populist issues, issues that people really are concerned about, the ability to feed their families, their ability to join unions, ability to be free from racial discrimination, etc. I'll just throw that out for comment. No, I think that's important. People lead very busy lives. And I think a lot of times when you ask people to involve themselves in, in local or national issues, you know, on a personal level, they may feel they're too busy. So unfortunately, yeah, the default position is vote once every couple of years, and uh, that's all you got to do to be a active citizen. But yeah, it requires more. But I think that the, the predicament a lot of people are in, you know, working two or three jobs, 
child care, all the issues of rising health insurance and education costs, people are stressed out. And I think the byproduct of that is people uh, feel so stressed that they're they're not involved in the day-to-day things going on in their own communities or, or the country as a whole. I think it's that's part of the danger is that the economic burdens on people are rising and uh, that's a byproduct of, of the policies that don't work for the majority. Yeah, I think that in order to draw people into a, a real broad-based united front against the kind of authoritarian threat that Trump poses, you have to define democracy as economic democracy, as racial democracy. It has to be a, a more compelling proposal for people to sign on to. And I think, sadly, the way the National Democratic Party, the Democratic establishment, that's Democrat with a capital D, is probably going to run this campaign. It's all about Trump is a scary authoritarian and Biden is the lesser of two evils. And I'm afraid that campaign is not going to work this time because uh, there's just too much turbulence going on. And Biden's poll numbers are plummeting, given his his support for the war in Gaza. I think Gaza is Biden's Vietnam, Mm. you know, uh, the analogy being to LBJ. And we note that LBJ withdrew from running again in 68 because, uh, you know, of the war in Vietnam, because of his being joined at the hip with that. And I think a similar situation is going on with Biden and Gaza. And if he doesn't change his position on that and adopt a more populist political campaign, that uh, we are in for some real turbulence and and bad, <laughs> bad political results coming in uh, 2024. I would just mention and get your response uh, to the idea that part of the problem we have with political violence and people really for being alienated from participating in our uh, our election system is uh, disinformation. And I was just reading this poll, a couple of different polls, but the, here's the, the gist of it. Republicans polled 51% said the, uh, the January 6th rioters, the people who participated in the insurrection, 51% of them said they were patriots, just like Trump. Yeah. And 59% of those Republicans polled, um, uh, again, about the uh, January 6th insurrectionists, the people who smeared blood and feces all over the Capitol, that they were defending freedom. That's their opinion. 59% of Republicans, 66% of Republicans support pardoning the J6 insurrectionists. Disinformation, and, and, you know, there are a lot of other polls, and People thinking Antifa and the FBI and Democrats disguised as Republicans were the ones who fomented the January 6th insurrection. (laughs) I mean, we laugh, but this is the reality in this country. There's a system of disinformation, a very well-funded and sophisticated propaganda network of not just Fox News, but a whole slew of right-wingers who spew this nonsense every day. And it's it's seeping into the, the brains of those Republicans out there who are big Trump fans, and they believe the lies. It's, that's a huge danger. And, yeah, when you see polls like that, you just want to move away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that the corporate media is, there, there really is very weak antidote available. 
vulnerable to that kind of misinformation. You know, just an example of it, uh, MSNBC, who we, we all flock to, you know, for some kind of truth-selling, just fired Mehdi Hassan, the incredibly articulate investigative journalist who uh, had a show on Sunday nights. They canceled his show, and then he decided you know, they were going to keep him around as a little pet, you know, to come on occasionally and give commentary. And he announced on, on his last show this past week that he will resign from MSNBC and not be around to be their little symbolic Middle East expert of Middle Eastern descent. We're just about out of time, and I just want to thank you and Ruth and our audience for being here with us for this edition of Resistance Roundtable. Uh, We'll be back next month with um, the same cast and crew on February 10th, so we hope you'll stay tuned. I believe Barakata is coming up with uh, John Lugo. So do stay tuned for lots more here on WPKN. And uh, thanks for supporting this listener-supported station.